0: everyone and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach to their private practice. We have some in-person courses lined up for this year to support clinicians with the skills to handle and manage the challenges of practice and applying a BPS approach. So if interested, reach out at tkex.org and join our private Facebook group, The Knowledge Exchange, a biopsychosocial discussion group. Today, I am lucky to have Ben Slade. He is a physiotherapist working in private practice based in Adelaide, who I was very lucky to meet at one of our online courses back in 2020, which sounds like ages ago now. I'm very privileged to have worked with as uh, in a mentoring sense and to be honest during this time I've learned just as much from him and his experiences as I hope he has learned from our interactions so I'm interested in diving into his experiences as a physio in private practice managing some of the very real challenges that come with applying a person-centered approach to clients with MSK related pain so Ben thank you for making the time mate
1: hello thank you i yeah, did want to say a big thank you for all the work that you do on the podcast, not just for today, but the amount that I've learned just through listening to all of the experts that you've had on has been awesome. So to be able to come in here and share my story to maybe help out some other physios is really quite a privilege. And you've definitely sent my imposter syndrome through the roof. So thank you. <laughs>
0: Excellent. So that's the first goal, ticked. Yeah, on. <laughs> success. Done. Mate, the, the question that I'm sure you asked some of your clients and you've heard on the podcast before, what's your story? I think you did a pretty fantastic job of
1: summarizing me really quickly just there. Uh, the simple summary is I'm a physio from Adelaide. I work in an MSK clinic where I see a lot of people with chronic pain, a lot of post-orthopedic stuff, um, working with athletes, I pretend to be an athlete myself working, also not working, um, competing in men's netball. Um, I suppose the longer story is, yeah, how I've gotten to where I am today and the, the struggles that I've gone through and how different my practice is today from when I first came out of uni. So I'm, this is my fifth year out of uni at the moment. And I'm currently working in a practice which I am enjoying a whole ton. This is probably the best I've felt in my career in a long way, um, but it certainly hasn't been this easy and it's certainly not easy now, but I really enjoy the challenges that I'm currently dealing with and it's, yeah, it's it's been a good whole process to get here. I suppose if we want to start from the, the very beginning, I first got into physio because I always wanted to have some career in helping people. Um, the health field was really, uh, really interesting to me because I just loved anatomy and biology and just the science behind it. So, physio was a pretty easy call. And straight from day one at uni, this was definitely what I wanted to do. I, yeah, never really considered doing anything else. Um, going through uni was a very interesting time. I look back on it and as much as I learnt and grew and really enjoyed the course, I think there was a lot that might have actually inhibited my growth to, towards today, um, particularly when referring to how I now practice in a person-centred kind of a, approach. Um, I definitely did not start practicing out a uni the way that I do now. Um, not to say that it was all bad. I was actually quite privileged at uni to have some of the mentors that I did have, I can recall one of our subjects, pain science, which was amazing, being able to be taught by V. Laura Mosley. He took one of our lectures, and being introduced to that world pretty early on with the complexity of pain and what we can do about it was a really, really important stepping stone for me. It was just unfortunate that learning that in my third year kind of went against the rest of the biomedical model that we were taught throughout that leading up to that point so of course ended up with a lot more questions rather than answers and throughout the early days of my practice I do feel like I was very much stuck in the biomedical model and trying to reconcile that with a biopsychosocial approach which was confusing as hell. I really didn't know what to make of it. I was coming up with a lot of struggles throughout my practice. Um, Yeah, a whole lot of questions that I just couldn't quite seem to answer. So it's been a whole ride to uncover that. And I'm really Mm. glad to have had the mentors that I have to to get me to where I am today.
0: It's fascinating hearing someone who's come across the... I guess one of the OGs of the pain science world and for the internationals, they might be like uh, there's also from my talks with international listeners and and clinicians overseas that there's this idea that Australia is just the Mecca with, you know, O'Sullivan and Mosley and the teams with pain science. And it's uh, fascinating hearing that even in Australia, we have probably the same challenges in a slightly different, healthcare context perhaps as say the United States and Canada but still some of the very real uh, discrepancies amongst uh, university subjects so how did you go because I had very similar struggles um, with my kind of making sense of the BPS and, and I had my own like heuristics of this is just for chronic pain at the start but when it comes to you know acute pain this is different so how did what kind of heuristics did you have how did you initially um, make sense of it as a new grad post uni
1: great question um, to be honest there wasn't a whole lot of sense making really early on I wasn't a very good critical thinker back then I wouldn't say um, so a lot of what I ended up resorting to was treating the way the people around me were treating and treating the way that uni had taught me how to treat, which was very, I don't want to say recipe-based, but it was very prescriptive in how I would approach certain things. Um, And, again, very much in the biomedical model, um, which left me quite frustrated having a little bit of understanding in this whole other realm of biopsychosocial practice. Um, Yeah, really, really challenging, and that's what probably – led me down the path to to where i am today just seeking out help and actually trying to uncover those answers myself which was too hard i had to actually go look for mentoring and actually find some answers elsewhere
0: so there was like a gap in the knowledge and some uh incoherences and of course it's kind of like um i use the analogy of when you're overseas and you don't know how to cross a pedestrian crossing, you look at people around you and you see how they do it and how people interact with the environment. So we just learn vicariously through other people around us and it's based on our previous experiences. That's how we apply it. So you hadn't yet been, it sounds like you haven't been given the, some of the the steps or the processes to then apply a bps approach in clinical practice it was just like um theoretically it made sense in some contexts but then practically in when you're in front of a, a client in an interaction with all the other complexity there's an added skill set that just wasn't yet uh, you haven't you hadn't yet at that time as a new grad been exposed to absolutely
1: yeah that's a really good way to put it i think I think one of the big things that I was coming across was that I was treating the biopsychosocial model as purely a diagnostic tool. So it was very much what kind of aspects of the bio versus the psycho versus the social is playing a role in this person's presentation. And once I uncover that, I just do the same regular stuff that I would do for that type of injury. And it was very much... Trying to look at it from a BPS lens, but then once I looked at it and assessed it, the rest of my process was just biomedically driven. So I never quite considered that there are psychological and social factors involved with treatment and what I do throughout a consult, how I listen, how I talk, what things I get them to do, what kind of messages they take away. It's not just you know exactly how i can make up this diagnosis full of all the different inseparable parts it's the whole time it's it's in action it's always at play
0: yeah yeah the, the idea that everything is through the lens of bps everything is bps i think that's also i resonate with that one where i still have to catch myself sometimes thinking that you know some treatments are more bps quote unquote than other treatments but like if you look at the lens everything has biopsychosocial components it's and everything is within that complexity and through the experience and it can be very easy again to go dichotomous and black or white on the surface level absolutely
1: and and you always get that analogy that the biopsychosocial model is so intertwining the bio affects the social, affects the psycho. It's like trying to separate the ingredients of the cake, but it's like that. But you're eating cake all the time. It's always at play. They're always intermingling. There's never not a chance that all three are interacting.
0: Love that analogy. Always, always eating the cake. I'm gonna steal that one. And <laughs> looking back, and with obvious now hindsight bias and and lots of lessons learnt, what would you say were some of the the challenges that you experienced as you were um, starting out clinical practice?
1: Some of the biggest things was trying to work out what the hell I should do. So the initial turmoil in my brain was that, that whole argument of nothing seems to work, but everything seems to work when it comes to pain. Um, There's a whole number of different managements and some are more BPS than others, Some create dependence, some don't create dependence. We have to always give exercises. Sometimes we don't manual therapy is good. Manual therapy is bad. It was always really difficult to try and find out exactly what is effective and what's not effective because you always hear two sides argue around each other all the time. And I got really sick of this argument because it's nothing's really defining what is working. Because it's true. Everything works. Everything can work. um, But it really, really depends on what your definition of working is. Because if it's symptom relief, then absolutely. I've seen some insane things work for for symptom relief. You know, I've had clients come to me, say that their Cairo pulls on their earlobes for a a neck thing. And I said, in all seriousness, how do you respond to that? Because I was just... And they said, yeah, really good. Yeah, it's, it's really helpful. And I just thought, what? <laughs> That's insane. Um, but then on the other hand, they were still coming to me. They were still seeking healthcare. So had it worked? I would argue no. So it just left me really confused with how to know where to start, what's good, what's bad. And it was just the wrong argument to have because it was just missing the person in front of me it was very much what do I need to select for this person it was it was more so about how I feel about the stuff that I was providing not about you know if the person in front of me is going to respond the right way
0: yeah so easy to get caught up in those debates and can be very one side versus other side and then very good versus evil and it's hard to then reflect and zoom out and step back to see like, what are we actually looking at here? What define works? What is, what does it mean by works? Whose goal are we talking about?
1: Exactly. And one of the the other big things that I was really struggling with was trying and failing to impose what I thought was the right thing. Onto my clients to try and help them manage their pain so they were coming to me wanting manual therapy and I had enough ideas that I knew that manual therapy wasn't going to change structure it wasn't going to be a big breakthrough for them Um, and they've tried it you know a thousand times and it hasn't been too effective in the long run for them and so I've just kind of been trying and failing to shove down their throat some form of exercise or loading or graded exposure and coming across with a big fixer mindset. So then I'm giving you all the answers and you just need to do exactly what I say and you'll be okay. Which was not effective. Not many people responded to that very well. No kidding. And I think that's what led me to seek out some other courses which aren't looking to expand my skill set of tools to use of treatments to access it was very much I feel like I'm struggling with the communication side of things I don't think I'm reaching people too well and I'm trying really hard to force behavior change onto people trying to change them into someone that can respond to pain a little bit better or manage things easier. And I didn't really
0: seem to be going anywhere with that. There's the seduction of the tools and like the interventions. And I speak as a EP generally for what I've come across is more the corrective exercise route and strengthening the right muscles and any particular specific modality of movement trademarked often with some abbreviations attached to it. Um, And I definitely fell down that seductive rabbit hole. And I think it took me three years or so roughly. It was definitely a process um, to kind of uh, see the other, I guess, perspectives and see and be open to, uh, the evidence surrounding my beliefs and it took you how long before? Because it sounded like you had a, like a, yeah, from my perspective, you had a bit of a, a much better start than I personally did. So number one, I'm jealous. And number two, <laughs> I'm curious, what were the factors that led you down this? Like already you were looking at the communication skills. It seemed it, you were looking at the the whole picture, the the process, you were less, Um, caught up, fused with, I need to add more tools to my toolkit.
1: Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm not exactly sure what it was that led me down this path to seek out these sorts of things in particular. Um, I suppose just seeing online a whole lot of what not to do and a whole lot of messages of don't do this, don't do that, I never really quite found any, hey, this is a good way to treat. Or here's an example of what proper BPS care looks like or person-centered approaches. It was really hard to find those types of examples online. So I kind of had an idea of what not to do, but that left me more confused as to what I should do. So I guess that's why communication was the first thing that I wanted to look into. Um, mostly because that was just such a weak point of my skill set at the time. I would now consider it to be one of my strengths. But even then, I'm still putting so much effort into continuing to refine that. I don't think it's ever going to stop for me. Um, But yeah, that was the first thing that I wanted to address. The second being, how do I select the right path for each client going forwards? What are some examples that I can actually follow and look towards and yeah what are some case examples where we can actually go through this identify what factors are important what factors need changing how can we facilitate that properly
0: yeah we need more examples of what it might look like as uh like a a case or um in our course the demonstrations and seeing like okay so we know we come across the evidence base of it's so easy to get caught up in the like nihilistic nothing works or it doesn't really matter just get them to do something or anything can work that kind of black or white approach um so then it's we are confused and overwhelmed that okay what do i do then like how do i then apply it to a patient to a client and it was the you noticed the communication skills was an area that you felt you could improve in and hence you seeked out the courses. It's, it's always fascinating to me from like the outside to see where people are drawn to. And one of the things you mentioned before was the those clinicians around us, how we're influenced very much by our profession, by client expectations, and then where we then get drawn more towards. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I think one of the the biggest things that really sparked me starting to seek out this stuff was one of the other physios that I used to work with in the clinic. Um, He would just kind of pull me up every now and then on certain things that I would be claiming or saying in, in just a way that he came from curiosity, which was fantastic. I loved the way he did it. But say I was discussing a client with him and said, Oh, yeah, this guy's got a, a grade two hamstring strain. He would say, Oh, how did you diagnose that? And I, of course, had to try and reason through, Oh, how, how did I come to the conclusion that it was a grade two? I hadn't imaged it, I didn't really know. I was basing that off an assumption of I know, you know, relative healing timeframes for different soft tissues, and this one was taking a bit of time. So possibly I'm going to guess it's a grade two. Didn't even consider that labeling it as such would influence my treatment and would influence how the person's going to react to that. Um, and I think having people to to call on me to update my practice was really effective early on. And, yeah, I was really fortunate to work with a couple of really good physios to start help developing my curiosity to expand my knowledge and actually seek out what is true instead of what I can assume.
0: The critical thinking kind of mindset to always look at the assumptions that we have that we don't even notice like blind spots within our reasoning and having that curiosity rather than the, the confrontation. So that's, that's very much uh, a needed skill to reflect on what we're thinking And how we got there, back to the claim of, like, we just do what we're told or we do what we're taught in university or in our clinics without actually questioning how how do we know?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's where my my mindset started to really shift, and I did become more of a critical thinker. And the types of sources I started looking towards was – what is backed by evidence? What can I actually see proof of? And so the next few courses that I'd selected to do for my PD uh, became the knowledge exchange courses because, of course, they've got that big old tagline by psychosocial approach to the, the lumbar spine and the cervical spine, and the shoulder. And they were pretty transformative because they did start to go through examples and cases and scenarios where it became clear of what's going to be effective in different scenarios. It wasn't very much, don't do this, don't do that. It was very much, here's what the research is actually telling us. Here's what's important in a certain case. Here's what you can do about it. And yeah, that resonated wholeheartedly with me and really started to shake up my whole process of how I manage clients.
0: Yeah, I can I can sense the curiosity during this process and I'm also reflecting on our conversations and interactions that you brought up during even the questions during the courses of always willing and open to question um, and also asking questions about how do we know or asking like well what happens when you do this like asking the questions that help you find answers and so the the one of the as a like feedback one of the times in our mentorship where I knew that we hit a milestone was when you started asking higher quality better I can't find the right term but just asking better questions I was like okay now I know you're on the right path, you've got the frameworks that you don't need me to give you, you know, spoon feed you any like theoretical knowledge because I know that you're on the right track towards getting the knowledge that you need with these questions, with the critical thinking skills.
1: I definitely felt that along the way and credit to you early on with our sessions, I always remember how I would come up with a question or an issue that I'm having in my clinical practice and you would always respond with a deeper question it was never just oh here's how you do it or no you're you're thinking the wrong way you need to actually be thinking about it this way it was it was always facilitating curiosity and getting me to look at it in a different lens which really just opened up different options that I can explore when I do come across issues and and challenges in the clinic.
0: Kind of um, reminds me of the voices that I have in my mind based on my own experiences with mentoring and supervision. Like I have uh, Anthony Barrick's, what's their goal in my mind every single time. Did you have like a similar, like my voice in certain, I even have Brendan's voice in some cases and like Luke's kind of persona and attitude based on the demonstrations I see and um, even like some other role models that I've had, what, what what kind of things did you take out of curiosity?
1: The little, what would Daniel do situations? Is that where you're getting that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or just like the, uh, yeah, the annoying questions that you'd probably predict I would say. Oh yeah. I'm sure. there's, there's, There's bound
1: to be a heap. None really come to mind at the moment. Um, but for sure, the whole what would Daniel do in this situation is is definitely something that comes to mind a lot. And something I've picked up from you quite a lot, actually, is when you you express what you're feeling or what goes through your head when you come across similar scenarios, a very introspective look at things. It's it's something that I do notice in myself quite often. And, and I suppose that's my little bit of your practice that I've taken quite the heart is whenever someone comes at me, you know, requesting some specific and weird manual therapy that I'm not too skilled at and I don't think is probably the best or most efficient path for them forwards. And that frustration builds in me. Previously it's been, oh, this person needs education. I need to fix, I need to jump into it. Now it's very much, oh, I recognize these feelings of frustrations coming up for me these are the reasons why I feel this way and then acknowledging that and actually putting them to the side and then just carrying on with the rest of the consult it's yeah been really effective in actually helping me respond to things a little bit better instead of rushing to that fixer mindset again and yeah having the rest of the consult go down a train wreck
0: there are others uh one of the questions I'd love to ask is like the skill sets that we're building on and what you've kind of gained as skills. And I think this is, you touched on one of the most, in my opinion, most underrated skill of introspection of awareness of noticing our own experience as clinicians. And like, that's everything that you've, had the capacity and the um, practice to during consults when you're feeling like uh frustrated at the person's narrative whether that's what they're doing or what other people have told them you're like okay i'm noticing i am feeling frustrated so then you can have space to acknowledge the frustration and listen and be present with that person because um, I, I, I feel I sense that that might have been one of the factors um, that you're finding most challenging at the start of like you know what do I do what should I do and shoving the exercise and education down people's throats like as a almost as a response to like our human experience of frustration.
1: Definitely yeah that was pretty spot on it was frustrating to have those clients and to have Those thoughts going on of, I have no clue what to do. This person's clearly not understanding me. This person needs so much help and I don't feel like what they want is going to be helpful for them. How do I reach them? What am I trying to do? They're not listening to me. Um, Yeah, that kind of frustration really starts to unravel a consult. And when you have those consults where you just think, what just happened? That was horrible. I didn't connect with that person in the slightest. I now so rarely have those moments because even if someone does come towards me with those kind of perspectives that are so different from mine, it's so much easier to roll with it now that I'm not reflective, um, not reflexive in just responding the incorrect way. We can kind of uncover it. We can start to communicate through it. We can ask deeper questions, uncover why they might be feeling that way. Um, the motivations behind it is is awesome. So having that ability to kind of steady myself when consults get complex has been, yeah, huge. Really, really, really good skill set of mine.
0: Yeah, credits to all the uh, hard work. Because that I think uh, we need to acknowledge, even I need to acknowledge how difficult it is to do that and how much energy and effort it can take particularly in certain contexts where there's literally someone in front of you that is wanting an answer or wanting a fix. And then we have our own uh, story of, I am the person providing the fix or providing the answer. And that's like our self-worth, our, our value is often the term that a lot of clinicians use, um, myself included. So then that, that's, that's like, that's hard and takes a lot of um practice that you've done over the, the year or two
1: i think tied in that is working out what your values are as well so having a strong sense of your own identity your own boundaries working out what you value within your own practice has really cleared up how uh, to respond to things as well So when you do notice those frustrations coming up, you do feel like you're under the pump, everything's getting hectic. Taking a step back and looking at, well, what way can I practice that fits and aligns with my beliefs and values? How do I then react accordingly, which is actually going to serve me and the client the best? So having those clear values, I think, is is probably another really big turning point for me. And I have to give credit to um, Nick Hanna, Hannah Moves, for that one. Um, he has his little mantra that he'll often remind himself of, those key things that he'll just run through in his head to steady himself and remind him what's most important for his practice. I've got the the same ones that I'll often run myself through to make sure that the way I'm treating or the managements that I select actually align with that and make sure that I'm, you know, not selling my soul to try and get some a little bit of pain relief.
0: So important to keep ourselves reminded of what's most important to us as clinicians and the mm-hmm. kind of person that we want to be and embodying that, that curiosity, that care, that compassion, honesty that the all the values that we we strive for the personal qualities i think um i'm just wondering about what the for the listeners that maybe haven't come across some of these skill sets and i'd love to hear on other like skill sets that you've uh picked up on so so far we've seems like we've touched on the communication skills and the um they call it mindfulness skills in some areas, but then when you say mindfulness, you lose people, and then they think that you're a psychologist. So maybe just like awareness <laughs> skills. Um, how about starting question? What other skill sets did you find most useful that you gained? And um, maybe then how how would you translate some of the uh, skill sets that we've just touched on, the communication skills and the the rich nuance to that, and the real deeper value and meaning behind those. To someone who's like maybe still towards the wanting to get more tools, more, wanting to get more interventions, or um, yeah, it, it, maybe they haven't yet come across things like values or or things like introspection before. Two questions. Feel free to start with whichever one. I'll hold them.
1: <laughs> um, I got a little lost in the questions there, but. I'll, I'll try to answer them together as best as I can. Um, I would say that one of my other strengths and skill sets that I've picked up along the way is that I can be quite flexible in the management that I do choose. Um, and I'm quite okay with that because so long as it aligns with my values, there's so many options that I can pick from. Um, so my ability to be flexible and adapt to my management I think is is something that's quite important for me. And in answering the question of why would I go for developing that skill rather than adding more tools to the basket is because adding more tools is, is more options. It's more confusion. Um, it really doesn't offer any clarity to me. If I have more ways of attacking a problem, I just want to find what's most fitting to the person in front of me. So looking at each client from a lens of like a complex systems approach has been really important because I can actually just pick a whole bunch of different factors, kind of lay them out to the client and say, which one do you want to address? Because all of these things are a factor in your presentation. They might come to me, you know, wanting manual therapy and it's not about providing the right manual therapy or improving my skill set with that manual therapy it's well why do you want that manual therapy what is that going to provide you what are you hoping that you're going to achieve cuz maybe they've got i don't know let's use the example of a non-specific low back pain and at the moment they can't go out and golf and they're coming to me and saying hey can I have a massage please cuz I want to go out and golf the communication is definitely going to evolve around, you know, what is the manual therapy going to do for you in having that we can uncover the real reason why they might be seeking pain relief and, and even going deeper through that. Can we explore golf without pain relief? How important is it to you that you receive manual therapy? What if there's other options that might be easier? Um, And it kind of streamlines decision-making in my view, having more options, having more skills, having more tools doesn't really do that for me, but actually really getting down to a proper person-centered approach has actually led me to have more clarity within my sessions. And it's, yeah, it seems quite simple and I'm probably making it sound a bit reductionist, but it's the way I really like to treat and it's it's always nuance as well. Like you need the examples and I, I keep accidentally bashing manual therapy, but there's so many other contexts in which I will still use manual therapy. I don't consider myself to be a manual therapist, but I, I still utilize it all the time because there's so many different scenarios in which that will actually serve a client really well um i'll take the example of what if there's a colleague a physio in the clinic that i work with who's dealing with a bit of soreness and maybe they're the most up-to-date practitioner ever they know the biopsychosocial model they know the all the intricacies and complexities of pain they know the limitations of manual therapy and they're coming to me saying hey i have this soreness and I don't want to have this soreness, can you quickly treat me because I'm going to feel better afterwards? Of course. Who who am I to deny them that? Why would I say, no, you have to put up with this pain and go give me six deadlifts? Like, that's just, in this scenario, that's ridiculous for me to deny them that when that's actually quite meaningful for them. If we go back to that person who's got a non-specific low back pain trying to golf, and they're coming to me wanting manual therapy, if we provide more context and say that they've only ever managed pain with manual therapy, and that's the only option that they see out of it, providing different options would actually be incredibly useful for them. And perhaps manual therapy won't be the most efficient way to get them back into golfing. And at the end of the day, it's still their choice. We're going to have that conversation. We're going to outline different options for them i think it was lars avemarie who said it's like we're providing them with a whole buffet of food choices and they're the ones that get to select what to eat um very rarely among my practice will i be putting manual therapy on the table but it comes up all the time because often it's what they're bringing to the table and in the right case in the right scenario when it really actually would serve them quite well I'm absolutely going to provide it it's not what I enjoy in my practice it's probably not what I'm best at I think I'm okay I'm at least an okay communicator so I'll you know make them feel comfortable as best as I can in the context as while I'm doing the manual therapy um but yeah, if if that's what they're looking for and it's actually going to serve their purpose, it's going to lead them towards their values, then sure. If it's the case where I think someone else would be better suited to providing that care, then I'll refer on. And I think that might bring me to another skill set of mine is knowing my limitations. And one of the really simple examples of that was uh, one of the other clinics that I worked at recently it was just last year um working with another physio who had worked for years and years in the strength and conditioning realm and was used to working with high level athletes and he had a very strong sense of confidence he came across with awesome authority and had maybe a little bit more of a directive approach than I would have had I would consider myself to be a lot gentler in approach with reacting to things that I disagree with. Whereas he had a very strong, I'm going to call it out as soon as I see it. And we actually really liked how we had different approaches because we would suit different clients that would walk through the door for someone that was getting frustrated with my questioning, trying to, go deeper, trying to uncover different answers, trying to get their perspective on things. They're just like, why do you need my perspective? I've come to you for advice. Just tell me exactly what to do and I'll go do it. And with a client like that, they're definitely better suited to the other practitioner that I worked with. So I'd say, hey, I'm going to give you these things to work on, but I think you'd actually get a better result with this other physio. So yeah, I'll book you in with that person instead and I reckon you'll get a much better outcome. And the other physio would do the same for me. If he's getting someone who didn't seem to vibe with him all too well, if they seem to really close up during an interview and they wanted a much gentler approach or if they kind of just switched off and didn't respond well to an authoritarian kind of approach, then he would book them in with me and I would actually start a little bit slow and try and uncover exactly what they're going through in a, in a different sort of way. Not to say that one's better than the other. It was beneficial to have both. And we ended up being a really good team together. We were able to fit quite a lot of clients into really good outcomes.
0: Yeah, that knowing the limitations, maybe also knowing each person's strengths and preferences with the approaches and frameworks and philosophies that they have, so then we can tailor it. To the person and their goals and it's less about the uh even the interventions it's more about the relationship the interactions the 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 process for the client and for their goals for
1: sure yeah i i'm trying to recall if i answered both of those questions that you said a while yeah, ago we'll just, i went on a bit of a rant there
0: that's right. i right i've i've been um uh on rants recently myself and I just like go off on a tangent. I felt like I did. So we can, we can discard. That was it. The second one was a uh, very uh, esoteric kind of question that just went into the air. Um, It may or may not come back. Maybe that's for episode two, but I'd love to hear um, the, what you've come across and what, what maybe some of the challenges in a broader sense as a physiotherapist in in private practice, that maybe you've heard from colleagues either in person or online and for the listeners some helpful ideas suggestions advice based on your experiences Mm. um one of the biggest challenges
1: or or one of the biggest criticisms that I hear about person-centered care is that it's simply just doing exactly what your client wants and it's it's not a very nuanced argument against it I think it's it's always uh, it's Luke Postlethwaite's example of if someone comes to you wanting to wave a dead fish over them, are you going to do that? And of course not, because that's that's still not what person centred care is. It. It's I would understanding... feel a million
0: dollars, and um, I needed to pay my mortgage off. So, screw both of you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look if if it would work. Sure, maybe I'd try it once. They'd have to provide the dead fish for sure, though. Um, but no, it's it's absolutely looking at at why they want that. It's it's not just simply we just cave and and they're the person that drives the entire thing. It's it's always more nuance than that. It's always going deeper, finding exactly what what it is they're looking for, what kind of outcomes they're trying to get, and and it, it's a collaborative approach. It's, you know, sometimes referred to as a, oh, what's the term? Is it a therapeutic-centered care, something there's along like those the, lines?
0: This relationship-centered care. There's That's the one, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm thinking of the therapeutic alliance and got confused. Um, but, yeah, relationship-centered care, which I think is maybe a more accurate representation of both people coming together to find the answers rather than, just me telling them what to do or just them telling me what to do because i don't think either one ends out in a good outcome um i suppose one of the other criticisms is what you brought up before it's it doesn't sound like an attractive skill set um it does seem like it puts you out of the seat of being the expert um almost like you, you have lost your authority and you're no longer this this gun that can just fix everyone's problems and that's that's always seen as the more attractive thing like I would love to be a biomechanist where I can look at you and you know find exactly what the cause is just by seeing you walk and give you the exact exercise that you're going to follow because it fits your scenario perfectly it it would be awesome if I could do that and it just never seemed to work for me when i tried always having the the one single thing to fix someone with was never quite the answer so i always needed more information i always need to gather more data from them and actually work out what's going to suit them best and again just being flexible in how you go about that if someone needs to build capacity and that's a whole nother argument i have no idea when we need to be specific to build capacity but say someone needs a certain amount of practice to be able to achieve something and i have to say to them go do some deadlifts and they say well i don't have access to a gym and i can't regularly come in to see you because that's not financially viable for me how am i meant to find weight heavy enough to do my deadlifts the context is just not there to support them in that chosen modality so you know if i was to just immediately say hey you need to deadlift to get through this Mm -hmm. that's not at all person-centered care and
0: just won't really work that way love that it's the acknowledgement of the the person's context and what they have access to and rather than it kind of circles back to we can be very much intervention centered with our approaches and this person needs exercise and then diving into it no one ever asks like why do they need exercise or like why do they need to get stronger or like what's the the function behind the intervention and applying the same questioning and the critical thinking skills to our own approaches can help as well.
1: Definitely. Um, One of the other challenges that just came to mind in trying to practice this way is um, your clinic's KPIs. That was one of the big ones that I had to come across in a previous clinic. Um, The fact that rebooking was such a measure of how successful I was as a physio became quite challenging when trying to apply a person-centered approach. So, um, or here we go. Here's a good Dan Arbilla quote that I will often use. And I I put on your hat in every consult when I use this is at the end, when you're wrapping up, it's how much guidance would you like from me going forwards? Such a, a powerful way to hear what their perspective is on something like rebooking and also a good little check to see how effective I was throughout the consult as well and have I provided what they need or do they have a similar perspective on what it's going to take to get over this do they require more help from me that sort of a thing um, but yeah working in a practice where literally my worth is tied to how many sessions I can rebook them in the initial couple weeks there's no room for that question I can't really allow a client to say yeah maybe I'll come back in a month and see how I'm going I have to say well I could always you know rub your leg three more times this week does that sound okay it's it's quite a challenge and and working in clinics like those where they really promote getting the most out of clients is is such a challenge. And it's seeing clients as tools for income for the clinic rather than
0: people that need help. Yeah, there's such a complex uh, discussion that requires its own podcast. And, um, yeah, definitely no expert on the the barriers within uh, our current healthcare system the retention focus the the fact that we're paid to see people more often and incentivized to do so and the pressures and other external factors along with that decision making and i think the most important thing is you touched on is that uh patient choice of rebooking i think um Back to the critical thinking skill sets that we mentioned earlier, it's questioning like, well, why are we rebooking in the first place? And if it's patient-centered and it aligns with their goals and their values, book them in four times a week. That's perfect. That's an option for them. We've given that as an option um, without the kind of uh, direct uh, paternalistic approach that doesn't provide that autonomy for them.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I can remember that clinic that would want me to rebook in that certain framework. And I didn't have an issue with that amount of consults with the client. I had an issue with trying to fit every client in the door with that approach. It was it was assumed that that would be the, the baseline normal rate of rebookings for no matter who it was. And, yeah, I just didn't vibe with that. Not everyone's going to need the same level of assistance with whatever condition there is. There's so many different scenarios that require incredibly different levels of help. So, yeah, it just, yeah, I could not practice in that way. And as to what to do when you work in a clinic like that, I really don't have a very good answer for that. I tried really hard to to force some change with the local physios at that clinic that I was working at. Um, My advice looking back would have been to try to come at it with curiosity, trying to foster their curiosity, just to say, you know, why is it that this is the way that you want to do things? Are there more effective ways of doing that? Um, If the reason is perhaps financial and we're trying to keep the clinic open, then I can absolutely understand that. If the clinic runs out of money, I'm not going to be able to help many people, am I? So of course, there's a bit of give and take there. But perhaps what's sustainable is not trying to piss everyone off by squeezing all the money out of them from the first meeting. Perhaps it's treating them well providing the help that they're looking for providing a really good service that they love and perhaps that is actually what is in turn going to help them come back um so yeah coming at it and trying to foster their curiosity and trying to be i don't know maybe a little less combative as to what i was back then i got quite frustrated i think that was perhaps when I wasn't as practiced as acknowledging my frustrations and thoughts that came up Um, as much as I apply that during my practice, it's just as applicable outside when having discussions with employers. Um, Eventually in my scenario, it was just crossing too many of my values, my boundaries, and I had to make a change, which ended up being to leave that clinic and find greener pastures which I'm really thankful I did. I feel like I stuck through at the clinic longer than I had to. It was really hard to move. I have to thank Laura Rathbone for a whole series of posts that she made on Instagram leading up to my change in work because a lot of it was incredibly empowering. She was saying how we shouldn't have to put up with environments like that, that don't support us, that don't align with our values. So that was a big kicker for me and, yeah, ended up being the best decision I've ever made. So, yeah, really glad to have gone through that tough time.
0: Mate, I appreciate you opening up. These conversations are, I'm sure, resonating with a lot of people in similar situations of that very complex and hard Uh, scenario of managing expectations and working with the needs of business within our society and within our healthcare system and also practising in line with person-centred approaches and self-management.
1: For sure. It's, yeah, it's as much self-care as it is good care for everyone else.
0: I'm curious as a, if we're talking a lot about values and mentioned like the, the, the importance of communication and, and soft skills and introspection and we've touched on uh, some of the, the ways that you practice. If you don't mind, what are your values?
1: Oh, absolutely. Great question. Um, my values are starting with the top one gratitude and this one, all of my values, they kind of, they're half values for life, half values for physio as well. So I might elaborate each one as I go through them. Um, gratitude to start off with in the physio lens is just being thankful that I have this job, that I actually get to be able to help people and reminding myself the feeling I get when someone discharges for a great reason, they've reached their goals and they're, you know, self-managing perfect without me. That's such a cool feeling. And I, I love getting that every time it comes across. So being grateful that that is my profession is pretty cool. Um, the, just the life side of gratitude is just recognizing how privileged I am. I mean, I'm a, a white straight male who's tall, financially stable, my health is fairly good. I don't think you get much more privilege than that. Um, So within that, it's just acknowledging that I have got different circumstances to other people that might be going through less privileged positions. I have to be quite grateful with where I am and acknowledge that not everyone is so lucky. my second value is empathy just really paying attention to putting myself in their shoes as, as best as I can and yeah I don't think there's much more to elaborate on that it's just a big part of what we do in general and it's yeah it's such a kicker for me um, the other one is being present everyone that comes to me has valid concerns. Every one of their struggles is really important and they deserve my full attention. I don't think it'd be, you know, fair on anyone if I gave someone more attention than someone else or if I wasn't fully engaged during a consult. Everyone deserves the best care that I have to provide. So presence is a a big one for me. Um, Curiosity is, of course... One of the biggest, and that goes for being sceptical of information, trying to find truth, trying to find what is most effective, what doesn't work, always trying to question what I hold to be true. If I always assume that I'm wrong, then I'm always looking for the truth. Just really hard to do. I reflexively think that I'm a genius all the time and it's, again, something to continually recognize in myself, see when that's showing up and actually always trying to remind myself that actually I'm probably pretty uninformed on this topic so I could actually stand to listen and learn to see if there's something new that actually changes my beliefs. Being open to that and being curious to that I think is a pretty big thing. Um, And then my last value is don't be shit. And it's, you know, always strive to be better. I think it's that constant updating, that constant improvement. If I always consider myself to be a terrible physio, I'm always looking to get better. I always think that the second I think that I'm a gun is the second that I stop trying to improve and then, and then I'm just another one of those physios that thinks they're top shit when really I don't think anyone has all the answers. And I think we're all trying to get there together. So yeah, don't be shit.
0: Gratitude, empathy, presence, curiosity, Present. and yep. don't be shit to so keep growing and learning and updating. Yeah. Mate, those are my values awesome that's the, the we've talked about communication skills and I think we touched on some human skills in there that yeah. oftentimes I hope so yeah as, as examples um, oftentimes these end up being long-term more practical than the typical skill sets that you would find in um, most of our EP physio courses CBD options
1: Turns out that practitioners are humans too. Who'd have thought? Mm. And
0: appreciate your openness and diving into the inner experiences of, of everything. Is there anything that you've that I haven't covered or that you'd like to add before I ask where we can find you? Um, I suppose my last piece of advice,
1: particularly if there are new grads that are listening to this and maybe they're going through similar sort of troubles that I have where they're having a whole bunch of different questions and not seeking many answers. I would say following a broad range of experts on social media is actually quite helpful early on, but you have to be critical of everything, really analyze where the information coming from. And not only that, but try and analyze why that person might be presenting that information. What are they gaining from it by posting this thing if the answer is they want to further the profession and help more people then awesome that's probably a good person to follow um but yeah following a broad range meaning not just the people you agree with but the people that you disagree with as well because again we don't want to be caught in that echo chamber and that's how you know you get stuck in rabbit holes and you start going down you know all those different non-evidence-based modalities and weird and wonderful tools that in your echo chamber sound fantastic and you never expose to anything else. So, yeah, you kind of get trapped and you don't really hear what other options there might be. Um, start with a broad range, but then pay attention to the people that are actually... Providing information that fits with your values. Um, One of the big things I think I try to analyze is, or the, the things that kind of indicate to me that they're worth following are the people that acknowledge that they have knowledge gaps. You know, it's the complete opposite to everyone needs to do this for back pain. Or here's three exercises that you need to do. Or you should never do this. Although I find we have more evidence of what not to do versus evidence we do. So again, more complexity. But people that can admit that they don't know, I find are also trying to seek the truth, and they're often the people that freak with the most evidence-based approaches.
0: So yeah, that
1: would be my my starting point for people.
0: Yeah. Can so the wild world of social media and the algorithms can be quite overwhelming. So it's helpful to hear that it's been valuable to you to uh, help make sense and and help, um, the, that curiosity of yours.
1: Absolutely. Everyone stay curious and don't be shit.
0: (laughs) Mate, where can listeners find you if they've got any questions and you've sparked some curiosity, I'm sure in our conversation. I feel like I'm one of the rare MSK physios
1: that doesn't have a physio dedicated persona online. So I suppose at the moment people can find me on Instagram at, uh well, I think I'm Ben Slade 10, I believe. I'll have to double check that. I don't even know. Um, if anyone wanted to reach out, I would highly, highly recommend that they reach me there. I'd love to hear them. Um, pull me up on any information that I'm spouted today that might be incorrect. I'd love to be more informed about these topics that I've just spoken on. So yeah, please reach out if you want to. Um, I would actually say that probably the best way, if you're looking to have a discussion is to jump onto the knowledge exchange Facebook page. If you have a question that you want my perspective on, tag me in the post as well. Often, Daniel will tag a whole bunch of people. And if he puts at everyone, then I'm able to hide behind that tag because no one else is going to respond to him. But if you call me out by name, then I have to because I look like a dickhead if I don't respond. So, yeah, if you want to talk through the nuances of how you might approach certain things, tag me. If you want a deeper discussion, jump into the, the group mentoring groups. I'm still there as regularly as I can with what fits with my schedule. It's, yeah, still a great way that I can hone my skills. Even if I'm not bringing any new issues to the table, the rest of the group is. And through hearing how each one of us would approach different things, I'm still refining my skills. I'm still updating my knowledge. It's a, yeah, a
0: great way to grow. Mass amazing to hear. And like I said, at the start, I continuously learn from you and the the community that we've built of curious humans and clinicians. Appreciate your time, Ben, mate. Thank you until the next one. Until the next one. Thank you, Dan.